I'm Janet Forrest, and this is the Nantucket Athenaeum Podcast. In this season of the podcast, my colleague James Greeter and I are going to take you on a journey through time. You'll find out about the faces and frivolities that graced, or maybe disgraced, the stage of the Great Hall. You'll meet musicians, lecturers, and illusionists, some of repute and some, well, not. Who were these folks that made the long 30-mile trek to Nantucket, and how were they received by the islanders? Welcome to Tonight in Athenaeum Hall. This is Episode 6, Henry Clapp Jr., Part 2. On Saturday, March 25th, 1854, the following announcement appeared in the Nantucket Weekly Mirror. Mr. Clapp's Lectures Henry Clapp Jr. arrived in his place on Thursday evening last after a residence in Europe of about six years. He will give a course of three lectures before the Athenaeum, commencing on Monday evening next. His subject will be Paris as it is. So where we left off, Clapp had gone back to Paris again in August of 1849. He was attending the Second General Peace Conference in Paris. 1848 was known as the Year of Revolutions. There was a lot of revolutionary ferment in the air in Europe, and Paris was abuzz with this, but also in the grips of a bohemian reverie almost. Bohemianism, which I'm sure a term you've I'm sure heard before, it emerged in France in the early 19th century. And it came out of a perceived similarity between the urban bohemians that they were referring to and the Romani people who were mistakenly thought to have reached France in the 15th century through Bohemia and the modern Czech Republic. Literary bohemians and the Romanis were both outsiders, which is why they were identified that way, apart from conventional society and untroubled by its disapproval. The non-Romani bohemians also evoked an air of arcane enlightenment with a perceived sense of carelessness about things like personal hygiene and Maryland fidelity. They had a much more sort of louche approach to life at the time. One you see replicated to this day in a lot of different ways. What comes to mind immediately would be a rock star in some ways that would have this general kind of appearance or perception of their appearance. I think of the hippie movement, like the damn hippies. Yeah, yep. <laughs> <laughs> the damn hippies, the beatniks in particular, because it was a much more of a literary edge to the beatniks, Jack Kerouac, which, of course, then graded into the hippie movement in some ways. So I think you're right. I think that I think it's the, that it's that reaction between the order and suppression and then the release of that and the yearning. So you had here in the States, you had the 50s with their very repressive sort of cultural norms. And then the 60s are when all of that broke down. You saw this more expansive and expressionistic movement appear. When Clapp moved to Paris, he said he found the French more genial and more witty than English or Americans. And while he was there, he completely turned a 180 on his previous lifestyle. This is a man who, well, he started out, I think his first job was as a Sunday school teacher, and then was a teetotaler and, as we know, a representative of the temperance movement and a speaker of some renown. He abandons all of that and developed a taste for alcohol, strong coffee, and spending time with women without marriage as a goal. Shocking. Shocking. I know the thought of that, (laughs) of not approaching it with that thought in mind only. 
we couldn't possibly get into Clapp's head, and I'm sure you've tried, but what do you think changed for him? I think he was just disillusioned with the progress of the movements that he'd been involved in. And it was kind of an anti-politics. Like he was deliberately refuting that previous approach in his life, although he was still concerned about the same issues as we'll see here in a moment because of what he does, but he doesn't participate in the the politics of the movement. So you don't see him attending conferences for temperance or anti-slavery conferences or peace conferences. It's just his approach to his individual interactions with people that he's changed. But yeah, he is an interesting character to have gone from that one extreme to the other. And I don't think he he ever really understood himself in some ways. His epitaph, which we'll get to eventually, kind of reflects that. I think his friends also felt that way. He was a very conflicted person who couldn't seem to enjoy the fruits of his own labors, even while he was spreading the, the, the benefit of his attention to other people. So he's there for five years in Paris. He's hanging out in cafes. He's making money by acting as a foreign correspondent for the newspapers here in the States, including The Pioneer and The Enquirer and Mirror here on Nantucket. In 1854, he had to come back to the States. It was noted in the Inky that he was you know, local son, returns to States after three years of Paris. He was called to testify in the extremely messy divorce case of his former employer, Christopher Robinson, the owner of The Pioneer and of the shoe factory that I talked about previously. I think his wife was divorcing him, which was kind of a new thing. And it made all the papers, society, you know, big society scandal of sorts, I guess, at the time. Well-known philanthropist and businessman, his wife spurns him and is going to divorce him. And so Clapp, knowing them both, had to testify in court about this. While he was back, he arranged to conduct a series of three lectures at the Athenaeum on Paris, which, of course, he just returned from. The title was Paris As It Is. Out of curiosity, how yes. old is he at this point when he's back on Nantucket? So at this point, Clapp is now, let's see, he's there 1854. He was born 1815, so he's 39. Got it. You know, he's well into adulthood at this point, and he uses his time in Paris as sort of the, the grist for his mill and describes this to his audience at the Athenaeum. They wrote later on afterwards that the lectures were enlivened by stirring incidents, sparkling thought, occasional wit, and truthful representations of Parisian manners and customs. So again, the sort of the through line for all of his speaking, it seems, and his writing was his wit and the sparkling nature of his prose. He was very effective at communicating and seems like he could not be ignored, even if people sometimes might have preferred that he could be ignored. Nantucket at this point is well past its prime. He grew up dreaming of becoming a whaler when he was a little kid, because that's what all young boys did on Nantucket if they could. But by the 1850s, Nantucket was in decline. This is obviously post-Great Fire, and we're now approaching a financial crisis that's really going to affect Nantucket. So Nantucket was not the place to be for Clap. He didn't stay here for very long. Did he really want to be a sailor? Because we had discussed before that he never really found his sea legs. Did he assume he would at some point? He talks in his essay about the trip that he'd always dreamed about becoming a sailor. So I think that occurred pre-teen years, pre-trip on the Clio, which disabused him of that notion. So he must have taken a, a ship, though, to get to New York, where he next turns up. 
he appears in the 1855 census and he was living in a boarding house with a family in Ward 8, Manhattan, which is roughly the area bounded by Canal Street, Houston, and the Hudson River. Clapp felt that New York offered a liberating anonymity to its aesthetic inhabitants. As anyone who's lived on Nantucket knows, there is no anonymity here, um, <laughs> especially at the time at that time when you were literally related to everybody. And so I think he found that refreshing that he could just disappear into this much more massive throng of people. Well, especially um, as someone that tends to burn a lot of bridges, you run out of bridges pretty quickly. You, in a small you do. Town. <laughs> <laughs> Lots more bridges in Manhattan. <laughs> so he's here in New York and, you know, again, he's back in a big city and he starts attending these informal literary receptions at the home of a rising star of the New York stage by the name of Ada Clare. Now, like I said, he was late 30s at this point. Ada Clare is maybe 19, 20 years old, young ingenue, as you might, you might say. But she was also very intellectually active and would hold these salons at her house or her, her home. And there, Clapp became involved with yet another movement, but not one that was a formal movement with conventions and meetings and things of that sort. This was the burgeoning free love movement, which I think we think of today in association with the hippies and a kind of just a generalized open sexuality. But that really wasn't at least not the main component of what was meant at the time by free love. Free love was the belief that women should be liberated from male domination, free to form marriages on the basis of love. Imagine that. Dissolve it when there is no more love and offer or withhold their bodies on their own terms. Much more modern view of marriage, I would think. We could use them in Congress right now. I think you might be onto something. It's hard to believe that this was, I mean, we were they were discovering these things or living these things 150 years ago, and yet somehow today we're still dealing with it. Mm -hmm. So they formed a club called the Free Love Club in New York. And the newspapers, they loved this. This was in their minds, a very lurid kind of association. <laughs> and so excited a lot of popular interest through their reporting on it. And at an advertised meeting of the club, hundreds and hundreds of people showed up, curious onlookers who you know were looking for a thrill, basically. Um, and they mobbed the place. And there was a virtual riot as people were trying to get in. And Clapp was actually arrested for causing a disturbance because people weren't paying the price of admission. <laughs> So even as he's, you know, he's got two things that seem to follow him throughout his life, his love of social movements and a lack of money. And so he's constantly trying to find ways to drum up cash because he was terrible with money management, as we'll get to in a little bit. The movement continued to grow and the members, they pitched together and they teamed up and bought a place to live together, a, an experimental commune of sorts called Unity House that implemented these so some socialist principles from Fourier, who we talked about in the first part, along with the idea of the equality of the sexes. While he was at the house, visiting the house, Clapp's companion, a young journalist named Edward Howland, met one of the resident women named Marie Stevens, who was a friend of Ada Clare. Marie Stevens was married to a fellow resident, Lyman Case, already. But when they met, this I'm talking here about um, Howland and Marie, there was an instant connection, that Thunderbolt connection, and everybody in the room saw this connection, including 
her husband, Lyman Case. But Case, to his credit, he recognized that his wife had experienced something exceptional that night. And true to his beliefs, after everybody else had gone home, he said to her, Marie, you've met your destiny. You've met the man of all men whom you need. And with his blessing, it was decided to pursue a divorce so that she could be with Howland. And then she spent the rest of a long and happy life with Howland. And Case remained a friend to both of them until their deaths. Which was really unusual because it used to be divorce. First of all, women couldn't get divorced. Like right. they couldn't initiate. Mm-hmm. And you needed a reason. There was no new, no fault divorce back then. Exactly. So the divorce case I mentioned before with Robinson, the reason why it was so new was because a, that it was a woman bringing a suit, the suit. But as you said, there had to be a cause. And her cause, I think, was spousal abandonment or alienation of affection or something of that sort. Um, but yeah, you couldn't just simply say, I'm done and walk away from that like, like you can today in a lot of states. It's a rem- much remarkable ability to be able to, to take that situation, which would um, upset most people, and to look beyond that. And not only just sort of begrudgingly accepted, but to be happy for them and then to be friends with them, you know, Mm -hmm. for the rest of their lives. So that there was a lot of success within the movement in that respect. I think that they, they made a lot of progress in the way that people treated one another on a day-to-day basis. Overall unity house eventually failed the way that a lot of these communal houses failed or communal organizations failed. But for the time that it was in place, it was a a remarkable uh, transformation of social mores within this one little building. Was Clapp a supporter of the Free Love Club or was he actually part of it? Good question. It doesn't seem like he was, like with other movements, he was an adoptee of it. He was an advocate for it, but somehow he still seemed to be on the outside. He didn't, li- <laughs> he didn't live at Unity House. I don't think that he would have been successful living there. I think people would have become annoyed with him yeah. uh, after a while and he would have had to have moved. So, yeah, I think I think he was in some ways really good at articulating the points and being an advocate for the message. But when it came to actually implementing that himself, wasn't great at it. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he died a bachelor. Now, whether that was because he was not inclined to marry a woman or some other reason, but it, he never did. There was never any record that I could find of him with any kind of actual romantic attachment to anybody, although he did seem to be particularly fond of Ada Clare, who he deemed the Queen of Bohemia, which refers to uh, the place we're going to be coming to next. Well, and he seems to really love the sound of his own voice. And he seems, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but he seems very narcissistic in terms of looking out for himself and his own cause and how he fits into the cause. And I don't know that he, I haven't seen anything yet that makes me think he has a lot of capacity for long-term relationships. I think those are two very perceptive statements. Um, <laughs> I really do. I, he, yeah, his interpersonal relationships were few and far between. There's not a lot of talk about, it doesn't seem like he kept in touch with his family back in Nantucket. I mean, we don't, of course, he could have visited when he was here or there are letters that he could have written, but none of that has ever turned up in any of the personal correspondence. So yeah, he never seems to have He's a friend of movements rather than people in some ways, I think. And so found it hard to interact on a more emotional level. And as you say, he was also fond of his own voice, had an inordinate fondness for puns. 
Oh no. Yeah, I know. I think that's why I like him. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think I think he kind of got in his own way a lot of the time and ended up being his own worst enemy, even as he was doing a great job with what he was trying to accomplish. For all of the accomplishments so far in terms of his participation in these various movements, we're just now getting to the point where he is remembered by the world for his contributions to American literature not so much through his own actions as through the people that he championed. The guy Howland, who I mentioned previously, who now had married this woman after she divorced her husband, he was a good friend of Clapp's, played a key role in Clapp's life. He sold his collection of rare books to provide the capital for Clapp's next literary endeavor. Again, somebody else is funding his activities. And on October 23rd in 1858, he published the inaugural issue of the New York Saturday Press which promised to provide literary, artistic, dramatic, and musical intelligence to the masses. He gathered himself a group of young writers, artists, and performers who would provide both literature that would populate his new journal, as well as his new favorite hangout, a beer hall called Faf's, or rather more accurately, the basement of a beer hall called Faf's. This business, which was located at 685 Broadway in New York, in March of 1859, Charles Pfaff moved his small eating and drinking house business from 685 Broadway, just down the road to 647, where he opened a new wine and lager beer cellar that was accessed by a sidewalk trap door that still exists today. It was like those, you, know, you see them service hatches on the sidewalk with a metal gate that pops up. You would go mm-hmm. down this thing, and I'm sure when they popped it open, you would just probably see smoke billowing out of this thing because <laughs> the gas lamps going, people are smoking. It must have just been a god-awful din and smell. But this was his new favorite hangout, I think because it, it reminded him of these the small haunts in Paris that he used to go to. So he also liked their excellent coffee and beer, apparently. So he was <laughs> so now that he's here, he's like, now I'm home. Like this, I get this. This is what I loved in Paris. And he sought to recreate the Bohemian feel of that cafe lifestyle in the smoke-filled confines of the cellar. This was the beginning of what would become known as the Vault at Baths. Just like the Algonquin Roundtable in the 1920s and the Chelsea Hotel in the 1960s, Baths would attract a crowd of writers, artists, and actors, all vying for Clapp's attention. Not least of which was Ada Clare, who was a frequent visitor there and the reigning queen of Bohemia, as dubbed by Clapp. Next time, we'll tell you who was at the table with Clapp and why you might remember their names and not his. This has been a production of the Nantucket Athenaeum. It was hosted and edited by me, Janet Forrest. Special thanks to Reference Library Associate James Greeter for his knowledge and research. The opening announcement was voiced by Andrew Cromarty. Please check the show notes for more information and references. You can find all the previous episodes of this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. If you have an idea for what we should talk about next, send us an email at jforest at nantucketathenaeum.org. The Nantucket Athenaeum is located at 1 India Street in Nantucket, Massachusetts. We would love for you to stop by. You can find us online at nantucketathenaeum.org 
or search at Nantucket Athenaeum on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening. And if you love this episode, share it with a friend.